Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. About 90% of nurses that were surveyed are considering leaving the profession. So think of all that knowledge and care leaving the profession. And that that is extraordinary. So I think it's worth a conversation to have within institutions as well as in those supportive organizations. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, it is Newsday, and today we are joined by Christine Parent with Meditech. And Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Meditech is a global company. And sometimes you're called on to do global kind of work. And you did a call with a country, what time, like 2 a.m. in the morning, 2 to 4, or some, some ridiculous hours. So there was a CXO global forum on healthcare and digital healthcare. And so our vice chairman of the board, Howard Messing, as well as my peer, Kathy Turner, who is the keynote, actually spoke to the virtual conference, which is based out of Pakistan. So in Boston time, it was 10 a.m. Um, Pakistani time, but in Boston, it was at 1 a.m. So yeah, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm, I'm looking alert on the, uh, the screen here, but it was actually a great, a great panel, great keynote, and a lot of energy going on in that part of the world. And they're, they're actually really transitioning to the EH medical record, the full-blown digital medical record right now. So it's been wonderful hearing from the folks across the globe that are really supporting and helping and, and providing some guidance. Oh, it's really interesting to me, whenever we talk about the EHR market, you know, people know who the, the big three or four are in the U.S. But globally, the, the numbers sort of change when you start factoring in global and the and the market, and there's some, the, the market's very different. And there's some other players in, in the markets as you go into some of these other countries. It's really, it's kind of, it's not as, I mean, we're down to like three or four major players in the US, but that's not the case globally. There's a lot of players globally. It's pretty interesting. You gave me a couple of stories and I, and I really like them. So let's, let's start with the Nurse Bill of Rights. I'll give a, a little background here. So this comes from Healthcare IT News. American Nurses Association released an updated Nurse Bill of Rights during the National Nurses Week, aiming at affirming the role of nurses play in the healthcare profession amid increasingly complex care landscape. And it says a bunch of other things, which supporting our nurses and those kind of things. And there's a lot to talk about here, but I wanted to give a, a couple. So the rights are outlined as follows, full authority for nurses to practice at the top of their license, credentials, and professional standards without barriers and in a manner that fulfills their obligations to society, patients, and community. Number two, continuous access to training, education, and professional development. I hope that's happening. Number three, work in practice in environments that ensure respect, inclusivity, diversity. And during the pandemic, some of that stuff sort of went by the wayside. They, they faced some pretty hostile environments 
And it was very difficult work environment. Number four, just care settings that facilitate ethical nursing practices, standards, and care in accordance with the code of ethics. Number five, safe work environments that prioritize and protect nurses, which again, that's great that's stated. I would assume that would be one of those things I would assume. Six, uh, freedom for nurses to advocate for their patients and raise legitimate concerns. Uh, seven, competitive compensation consistent with nurse clinical knowledge, experience, and so forth. Number eight, collective and individual rights for nurses to negotiate terms, wages, and work conditions. There's a lot going on in nursing, isn't there, right now? There is. And I tend to harp on the nursing component because they are still our largest healthcare worker out there. And you mentioned some of those Bill of Rights. And, and obviously, we all can understand what this really means is, is this isn't law, this is not a legal document, but it is a kind of a, a way for us to guide the conversation development of, of policies and practices within the institution, as well as different areas that different supportive organizations can work and get involved. You mentioned one that really hits close to home is the safe work environment and to, to protect nurses. And I recently had a podcast with Kelsey Reed, who's out of Phoebe Putney in Georgia. And she's a member of the Georgia State Senate that's in, they're doing a study or committee on violence against healthcare workers. And there's still a lot of work to be done. She actually cites that there's about approximately 80% of healthcare workers that have been assaulted at least once over their careers, which that's a very high number, 80%. And that she she did mention that the stress over the past two years, especially with the pandemic, has almost exacerbated the problem. So it is real. You would think that the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where security is the number two of the pillars of that triangle, nurses need our support more than ever before. And just one thing I want to mention, and then we can open it up because I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well is there's, there's a lot of, I mean, all of this makes logical sense. I don't think that there's anything on here that anyone can point to say, well, that's crazy for, to be in their Bill of Rights. But you still have post-pandemic and as we're entering in a recent study that says the nurse burnout has never been higher than before. And we have about 90% of nurses that were surveyed that are considering leaving the profession. So think of all that knowledge and care leaving the profession. And that that is extraordinary. So I'm glad that they came out with this. It was the right timing around Nurses Week. And I think it's it's worth a conversation to have within institutions as well as it's worth the conversation to have in those supportive organizations. Just prior to this, I took a look at the stock market and I, I shouldn't have because it puts me in a different mood when I look at that. But one of the articles was on restaurant workers. Now, I don't want to equate the two, but some of the statistics in there were pretty interesting in terms of well, first of all, the restaurant workers were all furloughed early, early on in the pandemic because people couldn't go to restaurants, and then they tried to bring them back. Well, a significant number are, no, are not going back to working in restaurants. That's one of the findings. And then the second is, as they are coming back into the workforce, they're looking for other things. They don't want to go back into restaurants. And part of the things that they cited were people are more demanding, people are more rude, people are more all those things. And the only correlation I'll make is it's a service industry. You have to deal with people and those kinds of things. We describe this environment and it's no wonder that we have a nurse shortage today. I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of it that's just pure demographics. It was happening. We knew this has been going on for the better part of a decade 
we knew that this was, we were heading in this direction. But I think the pandemic, the work environment, the way they were treated and whatnot created a, a I, I don't know, a, just a confluence of events. And now it's, it is collective top of mind. Like it is driving uh, wage inflation. We have traveling nurse right. challenge, uh, not challenges. We have traveling nurses filling the, the roles that need to be filled, but they're getting paid significantly higher than the, the local, and it only exacerbates the problem, right? So then the local nurses are looking at it going, wait a minute, what's going on? I'm going to become a traveling nurse because this is, this is silly. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of a weird dynamic. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And I was just at the Kim's New England event and I was talking to a couple of nurses that were there and that's happening within their institution to fill those gaps. They're bringing in some of these traveling nurses and, and there is, you can kind of see where there could be the, the tension between the two as, as they're trying to fill in and do care, but their costs have to be skyrocketing as part of this. And I know that at a time when we're not back to normal and everything's not back to normal, it has to be hitting their bottom dollar, bringing in this, this extra expenses. So one of the things I've been doing recently, Bill, and you can probably attribute to this, is I've been looking at, when I look at a, a, a problem or, or a topic, I've been looking at what the challenges are, but then also what are some of the solution areas. So when I started to look at this, one of the things I do want to point out too is there are some, some potential areas for solution for the nurses. I know that they have a burden of documentation. So how can we start to use some of the technology, some of the mobile devices, some of the more even voice voice to text type of documentation components, streamlining of documentation, and really start to harness the use of technology to really streamline and create those efficiencies from a documentation perspective. And then the second thing that goes to, and I think you mentioned this as one of the Bill of Rights, is we talked a little bit about the ability to recognize them as as experts in their field and leaders within the healthcare environment and really bringing them to the table. So how do we start to employ that nursing community into leadership within our institutions? And I've, I've gone into health systems before and they're very proud to say, our CEO is a, is a nurse, it's a nurse led organization. So how do you start to build up that credential, build up that um, culture so that you're including the nurses. I think I've said it before on one of our past podcasts, the nurses to me are some of the best problem solvers. And we've seen it in hackathons where they've brought in nurses to help solve a problem. And sometimes nurses are independent at the bedside, having to try to figure out what to do with a patient or whatnot. So they, they are an untapped or under-recognized resource within health systems. And as I've mentioned, they're also the largest care providers. So we have to make sure that we, we keep that group intact and we tap in to what they can do in their potential. All right, we'll get back to our show in just a minute. I wanna tell you about the podcast that I am the most excited about right now that I am listening to as often as I possibly can. And that is the town hall show that we launched on the community channel, This Week Health Community, and it airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. What I've done is I have essentially recruited these great 
hosts who are coming in and they are tapping people in their networks and having conversations with them about the things that are frontline kind of stuff. So it's it's technical deep dives, it's hot button issues, it's tactical challenges, it's all the stuff that is happening right there where you live on a daily basis. We have some great hosts on this show. We have Charles Boise, who's a, a data scientist, Craig Richardville, Lee Milligan, Reed Steffen, who are all CIOs. We have Jake Lancaster, Brett Oliver, who are CMIOs. We have Mark Weissman, who is a former CMIO and host of the CMIO podcast, and now a CIO at Title Health. And we also have the incomparable Sue Shade, who is fantastic. And I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that she's tapping into her network and having some great conversations as well. I'd love for you to tune into these episodes. I am learning a ton myself. You can subscribe on our community channel, This Week Health Community. You can do that on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google, on Stitcher, you name it. We're out there and you can subscribe there and start having a listen yourself. All right, let's get back to our show. It's interesting. There's a couple of things that are happening. One is we're seeing nurse unions. We're starting to see some walkouts. We're starting to see some chatter of strikes and those kinds of things. And I, I think it's indicative of what we're talking about here, which is multiple years, very difficult uh, work environment. We lean on nurses very heavily, and we're getting into that situation where some are saying, okay, no more, and these this situation isn't really working for us. When I talk about the traveling nurses, I, I don't want to portray them as a problem. They are actually solving a so challenge that we have. Yeah. But I talked to some CMIOs who said you know, the traveling nurses don't want to learn the workflows and the other things like the other, like the nurses who are the, going to be there full time, because they might only be there for two months or okay. three months. So they're not going to spend the time to really learn the EHR, the workflows, the, all the protocols and stuff. So that creates another problem. And then the, the, probably the problem that's the, the most acute right now for health systems is uh, the financial one. And you have uh, Common Spirit posted half half a billion. I, I, when I say this, I think people hear million, but it's half a billion dollar loss. Providence, half a billion dollar loss for the quarter, by the way. Yeah. It's just one quarter. Uh, quarter of a, a quarter of a billion for Advocate Aurora and, and everyone I'm talking to. And by the way, those are the big ones and those are big numbers why I share it. But when you go to the smaller ones, it's really problematic. They are... They might only be burning 10 or $20 million a, a quarter or a month, but that's a lot of money to a small health system. And everybody's trying to figure this out right now. And it's, it's really hard. And I'm wondering, like, where does this problem go in a health system? Like when, when they look at it and go, look, we can't sustain the costs, the the nurses aren't happy. We definitely need to sit down with them and understand what's going on. We need to address this long-term problem. I'm on the record as saying, I believe the nurse shortage will last for the rest of my lifetime. So hopefully that'll be another 40 years, but I, I don't think the nurse shortage is going away in my lifetime. That's what I've said. And so that creates a problem that you go, okay, if it's going to go on that long, then we have to take care of the nurses that we have now. And we cannot continue with this financial arrangement the way it is. Who does that get 
that problem, I, I know it's shared in a health system, but and it's clearly at the CEO level, but who do they go to? Do they go to the chief nursing officer? Do they go to the CMO? Do they go to the CMI? I mean, who, who looks at that and goes, all right, we've got some work to do here. I think in, in, to your point, I don't think it's any one person. I think it has to be collective. Every person has to come together for their organization. I will, I will say also that you have to include the board in the discussion. I've actually been at conferences and I sat down with a gentleman who was at a health IT conference who was in banking, but he sat on a board for his local hospital and he was having a nurse strike. And he wanted to better understand and start to understand what he could be doing different, what leadership could be doing different, how they can maybe add in some different either benefits or education or training, look at technology to make sure that they're staying current. So I do think that it's, it's collective. It's not any one person. And I would actually include the board in those conversations because I think you're right. I don't think it's going to be one year and done. I'd love to see a lot more, and I know that this is happening at more local levels where they're reaching out to different uh, teaching institutions to actually pay for the nurse education in some components. So how do we start to, to bridge that gap? How do we start to train work that maybe are looking for a change in their roles with this you know, great resignation? Maybe there's folks that want to go into healthcare that have new ideas, maybe it's their second career. How do we, how do we start to onboard that next group of, of nurse leaders? And, and like I said, it has to be an institutional commitment. It has to be cultural. You have to include them in leadership. You have to look at technology. And I think it needs to be a um, complete organization-led initiative. Yeah, I agree. So let's take this to technology. We have a couple more articles here. EHR Intelligence. Supportive health IT structure linked to global EHR satisfaction. And this is one of the things that comes up whenever we look at clinician burnout and those kind of things. They, they talk about uh, the EHR. So uh, a little bit from this, supportive health IT structure is a factor most associated with EHR satisfaction, according to Class Arch Collaborative Report. And we've talked to the people from Class and the Arch Collaborative on the show, and we shared some of those. If you want to look for those shows on the on the website, you can do that. In global health systems, clinicians who strongly agree that their organization supports the EHR are 132 times more likely to report EHR satisfaction than those who strongly disagree. So this is, a, is this really about training? If, I, if I'm reading this correctly, this is about putting the right training and support alongside the clinicians to help them use the EHR. Is that, is that what I'm reading? So there is a lot to that. And that's, that's really, if you were looking for the boilerplate or the one, the one liner, I would say that, that that is a correct summation. However, it gets a little bit more complicated as you start to go into and delve into what they actually looked at. So I, I like you, have had the luxury of, of at least having some conversations with class specifically around some of the ARCH data. And it's interesting when they, they did this survey they actually were able to show that there's two institutions that went through an implementation and they have the same EHR, but they have very vast outcomes of satisfaction. And so as they started to dig in, that's where they started to look at, I think their top, their top number one was personalization, which you know that, that means that you have to go in and it's either by specialty or content or whatnot. 
But number two, around the 20% mark was around that, that training aspect. And so what I would say is it's, it's funny because when we go in uh, and do an implementation, we're very prescriptive. We try to you know, put together what we think is best practices. I love the fact that ARCH is actually looking globally to best practices and providing that information so that everyone, regardless of EHR vendor, can take advantage of, okay, this is the, this is the number of hours, et cetera. But it's not one hour and done and you get a password and you go on a system. You need to make sure that they're, they're in, it's by specialty. Is their setup appropriate? Do they have the right content? What does their practice look like? So there is a lot of nuances that go into training and it needs to be personalized. We've had one, a couple of um, customers that have kind of pushed back on the amount of training that we've suggested and said, well, they're not interested in the training. Well, I dispute that based on some of the numbers that we talked about, because they did say that almost, I think it was like two thirds said that they would actually physicians take on more training if, if it was offered. Because as you start to go up with your EHR, you start to realize that the only things that you're calling in are those things that are stopping you dead in your tracks, but you're not looking to see how you can optimize other areas. So it's, it's a continuous investment in new functionality, trying to refine your workflow process. And we had one customer, and this is my favorite, had t-shirts made up that said, no training, no password, no kidding. So they, they made their physicians go through because their investment is this big EHR. And the only thing that's going to be successful is to make sure that the EHR is working for the physicians, the nurses, and the patients. And if we don't have the training, it's obvious based on the data that they're not going to have the satisfaction. All right. So to tie this to the last story, so nurses and allied health professionals are more likely to experience burnout compared to other clinical roles as part of this article. Let's talk about training. So there's a lot of different ways you can do training. You can do high touch, low touch. So you can do computer-based training. You can do classroom-based training. Uh, you can do- Elbow uh, support. Yeah, elbow support, concierge type support. We're talking about a tight financial time and you're bringing in a lot of traveling nurses and those yes. kinds of things. I could see health systems saying, hey, you know what? Our training department's costing us X amount of dollars, let's go to more computer-based training. Is there different levels of satisfaction or effectiveness based on those three types of training? So it's interesting that you, you bring this up. I know that in the ARCH, one of the outcomes of their report said that self-directed, which is your LMS, your e-learning trainings, which is growing in popularity in health systems, that's your um, online learning, is less effective than other types of training. So I, I will put that out there. I push back on that a little no, but, bit. But it's the least expensive to it, deliver. Exactly. So that's where I push back on the arch a little bit, because I do think that they need to expand that to understand that there are certain pieces and times and functionality where the e-learning actually makes a lot of sense. And I go back to during the past two years, just dealing and supporting our health systems through this process. A lot of them did e-learning as part of the workflow to onboard you know, some of the COVID practices. They did the workflow to onboard the telehealth and e-visits, and it worked very well for them. So there is a need for the elbow support, 
there is a need, I think, for the classroom settings, but I think that I, I would not actually think it's on the rise. The, the LMS, the e-learning systems, how do you institute that into your point, especially with these physicians? They might go home at night and watch like an hour um, of an e-learning session instead of taking that out during their day and having to come in. So I do think uh, we're going to see more and more of that. And I, I think it's becoming more effective as we learn what's working, what's not working, what's surveying, but almost love to see either by not so, no, not so much of a, a kind of a one-liner about self-directed e-learning that, that paints a picture on the whole concept of health systems, but maybe into different seg seg segments, functionality. And I'd love to see them do this in three to five years to see if there's a different outcome or a different number. So the, the concierge, the at-the-elbow support is the most expensive. Right. And let me tell you how we used that. How we used that was we would identify, because every, every EHR gives you all the feedback of how people are using it, how effective, how much time they're in there, that kind of stuff. And so you could look at the effectiveness of the clinician using the EHR. And then what we did is we went out to them because one of the findings in the Arts Collaborative is that customizing the EHR to your workflow, to your environment is so critical to effectively using the EHR. And that's what we would use the at the elbow support for. And a lot of times what we found when we send those people out and they're at the elbow, they'd be like, you didn't customize this at all. I mean, no wonder you hate using this thing. It's like, did you know you could do this and you could, you could group these things so you could, and Typically, that that led to a very high satisfaction rate for us. And I would love to do at the elbow with everybody, but it's just not practical. I agree. And I think that in the survey itself, you, you kind of identify maybe the areas or specialties that are struggling, and maybe you prioritize those a little bit more for the elbow support. You do some classroom training, some e-learning training. And I know for us anyways, uh, we, we tend to do some annual, even optimization, which are more global and virtual by nature, and we bring in the masses. So I do think that there is a time and place for everything. I, I, I do know, at least for myself, we have started to use the e-learning and LMS, even in some of our trainings with our customers, um, especially during the pandemic when we weren't necessarily on able to go to site all the time for each training visit. So we are doing a hybrid of classroom, elbow, train, train the super users, as well as doing some LMS training. And it's the, the combination is working out well. It's just what is the subject matter to your point? What's the use case and what's the, what's the economics of doing some of that? All right. We'll close on this five key stats on clinician EHR burnout. And this is actually from the class report, but it's from Becker's and they just captured some key stats here. So during the first 15 months of the pandemic, physicians experienced a small but sustained increase in EHR messages from patients, according to a study release. So that's one one thing, we are generating more messages directly from the patients and putting that in their queues and queuing that up for them. Uh, number two, nearly 33% of physicians spend two hours or more completing documentation outside work hours daily, according to class research also released in March. 41% of physicians agree the time they spend completing documentation is appropriate, whereas 58% disagree, according to class research. For Clinicians who are very dissatisfied with their organization's EHR are nearly three times as likely to leave. Wow. Compared to clinicians 
who are very satisfied with the organization's EHR. And then finally, the percentage of clinicians who strongly disagree with their organization's ongoing EHR training is sufficient are twice as likely to leave compared to clinicians who are who strongly agree. So in this environment where we're worried about clinicians leaving and we're worried about burnout, the effectiveness of the EHR is, is pretty important. Now, some of these things are technology related. A significant amount of it is the implementation itself. I was talking to, I was talking to Jake Lancaster, CMIO at Baptist in out of Tennessee, Baptist Memorial out of Tennessee, because there's so many Baptists. But he he was saying they were experiencing a million alerts and they brought that down to a hundred thousand alerts. It's that kind of work that is so critical on this burnout thing. Because a million alerts, who can digest that? And I know that was across clinician, all clinician classes and whatnot. But still, who can digest all those alerts every time you log into the EHR? Alert, 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 alert. You just can't do it. Absolutely. And, and to your point, we're talking about the cost. You just actually shared with us some, some information on some quarterly stock information from some of the health systems and what they reported. But if you're losing your nurses, physicians, what is the expense if it's overtrained to actually replace and fill in that spot? So they there needs to be an investment somewhere for retention. And it, again, I go back to the first article, I do think that regardless of what you think that, that needs to be done, there needs to be some input and value to the training on a yearly basis, not just during the implementation or optimization phases. And the cost of not doing that is far greater to losing and not retaining your staff than it is to make sure that you have something that is systemically in place. The nice thing about these quarterly first quarter numbers is they're showing me that this is a industry-wide problem, at least across the U.S. I'm not looking at it globally at this point, but so we can paint the picture. It's not us. It's all of us. That's, that's fine. But now we have a number to put in there. The cost of not doing training is this kind of return versus this kind of return. And I, like it or not, a lot of health system leaders still speak finance much more than they speak any other language. And so when we can put it into very clear terms that this is the minor investment you have over here for education and at the, even at the elbow support, and here's, the, here's your first quarter results and this is what it's going to look like, I, I think that tells a pretty compelling story. Absolutely. Well, Christine, as always, these 30 minutes fly by so quickly, but I love our conversations. I did want to note that you're going to take a little bit of break here. You're going to be sending us some of your clients to participate in the Newsday show. I, I always look forward to that. You get a little different perspectives, but hopefully you'll be back again sometime soon and we'll continue to have these conversations. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference-level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, 
Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. <laughs>